Hey, I, I want to quickly welcome you here this morning. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Youth Sunday. And uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is John, and uh, I have the amazing privilege and responsibility of overseeing our youth ministry here at the church. Um, now, if you don't know about our youth group, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about who we are. As a youth group, we exist to fulfill the mission of the church, which is to lead people to be authentic followers of, of Jesus. And it's our desire and, and our heart to help young people live their lives for God in the midst of a lost and broken world. And so what we get to do week after week as we gather together with our students uh, is we get to share with them about the hope of Jesus. We do this through games, through worship nights, through messages that speak into students' cultures, and, uh, and through gathering in community where we spend intentional time mentoring uh, students in, in a small group. Uh, currently, we are running three different youth programs across our campuses. Uh, we, uh, we have a junior high and senior high uh, youth night here in Chilliwack, and we also have a youth group in Agassiz called The District. Now, what's really cool this year is we have seen uh, just a, a ton of students come into this place. Uh, roughly 290 students have walked through the doors of Central this year, and what's amazing is that God keeps leading more and more every single week. Uh, and that's, uh, that's really amazing to see. It's a great problem to have. Also, really, really great job security. So um, I, I want you to understand this. Like, this is, this is like a really cool God thing. In the next two years alone, uh, we're expected to see 100 new students transition into our youth program just from Central Kids alone. Okay? What that means is that doesn't include friends. That doesn't include visitors. And so as a church, we have been tasked with this massive responsibility uh, to walk with students in the most formative years of their lives. And, and this morning, what we get to do is we get to say thank you for, uh, for investing in student ministries in this place. And, and we have this call to actually ask you to continue to invest in the lives of students uh, in, in mentorship, in love, in guidance as we walk with, with, these, with these kids. And so this morning, I want to encourage you as a church to continue to lean in as we point students closer to Jesus. You see, I believe in the depths of my heart that youth ministry matters. Uh, and, and I believe that because my life was, was changed here at youth group when I was a, a middle school and high school student. I came to this youth group. And so I believe that our youth group matters. And the students of our church, they don't need clever ideas or great programming skills. Rather, they need people like you. A living model of faith, a man or woman of God who is passionate about their faith and who's willing to walk alongside students as they navigate their life, their culture, their questions, and their faith. You see, they need someone to keep reminding them that there is hope and that hope is found in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you that if you've got questions about how you can be involved, whether it's just even praying for our students, whether it's becoming a small group leader or, or helping with our outreach events, uh, I want to encourage you to come talk to me or after the service, head to the table in the foyer and chat with some of our leaders uh, and they will be able to share with you some more about what God's doing, uh, the impact that it's having and how you can be involved and love students in this place. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series that we're calling As Numerous as the Stars. And if you haven't been around the past few weeks, uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the story of this guy named Abraham. And what we've been discovering together throughout the story so far is that Abraham really sucks at this faith thing because he keeps trying to take matters into his own hands. 
But God, time and time again, steps in and intervenes on Abraham and Sarah's behalf and reminds them, and this morning reminds us, that he is faithful to all of his promises. And he will always be faithful, even when we are faithless. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open to Genesis 20, uh, verse 1. We're going to read all the way to 21, verse 7. And let's read this together. Uh, the, The text will be on the screen as well. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Nagab and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Ger. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Ger, sent and took Sarah. But but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me that she is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against her. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. And so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, folks, welcome to Youth Sunday. (laughs) I I don't know about you, but but I feel like I just watched the follow-up sequel to a very bad Jerry Springer episode. 
right? You have some old hillbilly character named Skip Abraham going back onto the show to convince the audience for a second time that his wife, Sarah Jane, is actually his sister, that she gave birth to a baby at 90 years old, right? It's just, it's, this is a weird one. But I don't have Genesis 19, so that's good. You know, as I, as I read this passage, I was, I was left wondering, how did Abraham ever think that this was a good idea? Now, I have something to confess to you this morning, and it, it may not be a shock to most of you, but I am not a smart man, okay? I am not a smart man, but I know what love is. Thank you, Forrest Gump. And what I know is that as a husband that I am supposed to honor and protect and care for and lay down my life for my wife. I'm supposed to proclaim to the world that Heather is mine. She's right there. And she's very beautiful. And although I've done a lot of stupid stuff in my life, I can stand up here with all integrity and say that I have never called my wife my sister. All right? Because <laughs> I, knew, I knew from the very beginning of our relationship 16 years ago that this was a relationship that was to be honored. You're not supposed to convince others that your wife is your sister. And so because it's Youth Sunday and because we're looking at a, at a really strange passage, can I have your permission to share with you John's top five reasons why you shouldn't call your wife your sister? Alrighty, I'll take your laughter as confirmation. Starting with number five, you shouldn't call your wife your sister because it's going to make family gatherings really uncomfortable. <laughs> number four, calling your wife your sister only tells the rest of us that chivalry is dead in your marriage. Uh, <laughs> number three... Calling your wife your sister does not only offend your wife, but it also offends your sister. Number two, calling your wife your sister is just as bad as calling her your cousin. And with a loud drum roll, please. Number one, calling your wife your sister only tells the world that you might be a redneck. If you have any complaints on this part of my sermon, please send an email to Gary at central365.org. He'd love to hear you. Hi, Gary. Well, this is the second time in our sermon series that we have run into the same problem. It's a new day, but Abraham struggles with the same sin. And it is the second time in the story of Abraham where he throws his, his wife underneath the bus because of the fear that he has for his own life. You see, what's really important in our passage this morning is that we understand that Abraham is deceitful and he's a sinner. If you open your Bibles to Genesis 12, you will read the story of Abraham and Sarah traveling to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And it says that when they were about to enter Egypt, Abraham, in all of his splendor, uh, has the guts to go up to his wife and say, Sarah, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And, and you think he should have just stopped there. But he doesn't. Imagine for a second, Sarah, you're beautiful. And for a moment, her heart flutters. But Abraham misses it. You're beautiful. And when the Egyptians see me, they're going to say, so this is Abraham's wife. And then they're going to kill me. And they're going to kill me because you're beautiful. And although they're going to kill me, they will let you live. So what I want you to do is I want you to say, I'm his sister. So that, that it may go well with me because of you, and as a result of this, my life is going to be spared for your sake. You see, out of fear, Abraham convinced his wife to lie about their relationship. And, and, and when, when they thought they got away with it, Genesis 12 
Genesis 12 tells us that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. You see, God grabbed a hold of Pharaoh's attention, wakes him up to the whole, the whole scheme. And, and so what do you do when someone's wronged you? Well, you have a conversation with them. You, 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 you want to teach them. You, wanna, you want them to learn a lesson. And so, so that's what Abraham does, or that's what, sorry, what Pharaoh does. He goes up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, old buddy, old pal, let's have a conversation. Let's, let's deal with how you've wronged me. You, you told me that your wife was your sister, but I, I know what you did. I know that you lied to me. I know that you deceived me. You see, Pharaoh calls Abraham out on his sin. And as a result, it says that he doesn't kill him, right? He should have killed him. But what, is, what does Pharaoh do? He graciously kicks him out of Egypt, tells him to smarten up. You see, a great lesson was learned that day for Abraham. But here we are in Genesis 20. It's, it's 25 years later. And Abraham is pulling the same crap. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm really slow to learn lessons in my life. And there are people in this church who can confirm that with you. Uh, one being my lovely, lovely, lovely wife. Okay? And if you, if you want, you can go up to Heather after and, and ask about the time that I built steps at my old house with Nate Bursey. And she will tell you that I do not learn easily. You see, a few years ago, we were selling our house, uh, but the front steps of our, our house were rotten, and so we decided that we needed to replace them. So as we're ripping it down, all of a sudden, this storm rolls in, and uh, thinking that it would save some time, I decided to send my wife to the lumber yard with our four kids, right? Smart idea, right? <laughs> think, of, think of how productive she can be with four little people helping, right? Uh, and, and, and I gave her what I would say is probably... And I'll own this part, the worst instructions that you could ever give someone if you're getting them to go to the lumber yard. Uh, and, and so as I did this, Nate Bursey uh, looks at me and he says three words. He goes, John, buddy, no, right? <laughs> you, you think that I would have learned this, but no, what do I do? And I, I send Heather, and in my defense, Heather knows that I'm a pastor and not one of them construction guys. And she also knows that I can't read a measuring tape for like my life right? Because this is how I read it. It's five inches and four lines, right? It hasn't failed me yet, but that's how I read it. And so she's fully aware of what she's getting herself into. So Heather leaves, she goes to the store, and can you guess what happens? My phone rings, and it's the guy from the lumber yard <laughs> asking for better clarification of what I needed. And do you want to know what he said to me? He, I kid you not, like this is literally the conversation. It went like this. Next time, you shouldn't send your wife. You should just come down yourself. So my wife comes back. Well, that's a good word. I needed to hear that. My wife comes back with material loaded in the back of the truck, and I get rebuked big time. She's like, never again do this. So I go to the back of the truck, and I go, she got the wrong material. So, Heather, I need to send you back because it's the wrong size, right? It was four inches and five lines. How could I get that wrong? And, and it took me two times being rebuked by my wife, one time by the hardware store guy, and years of mockery by Nate Bursey to know that this is not something that I should do. All right? I'm so sorry, Heather. Here we are 25 years later, and Genesis 20 reminds us that it may be a new day, but Abraham still struggles with the same sin. And Heather, in 25 years, I may send you to the lumberyard again. All right? It's my promise to you. 
So our, our passage starts off by telling us that Abraham is on the move again, and it says this. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Nagab and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in, in Gerar. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but for whatever reason, Abraham thinks that it's a good time to be on the move. It could have been that he just saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It could have been that he experienced the wickedness of humanity. He had seen God's judgment. Or maybe it was just common practice to move around so that an enemy wouldn't attack you. We don't, we don't know the reason why. But what we do know is that it wasn't based on God's instructions to move. Abraham moved on his own accord and he ends up finding himself in this foreign land. Now, not very much is known about this place, but what we do know is that it was ruled by a king uh, named King Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is the El Jefe. He's the boss man. He's the guy who, who rules everything, who knows everything, and everyone knows him. He's been given the title of king, which means he's got wealth and influence and power. And, and so imagine what would happen when Abraham and his crew um, move into the neighborhood unannounced. Here, Abraham himself has acquired wealth. He's brought people along with him. He has servants. He's, he's brought all of his animals. His, his moving into the neighborhood is not unnoticed. And that's what happens whenever a, a large group of people go somewhere, you stand out. Actually, one time, our, our grade eight guys, we decided that we were going to join the water aerobics class for a small group fun night at youth group. And let me just tell you, we were noticed. But I, I think we were noticed because there was one kid um, who was doing handstands the whole time. And the guy that was instructing the class comes up and he, he walks over. He goes, hey, are you guys from Central? And I'm like, oh, shoot, guys. Like, we're noticed, right? Stop, stop goofing around. Do the water aerobics with the old ladies, right? Like, this is what we got to do because they know who we are. And that's not good. Um, and and so, so that's what happens is, is Abraham and his family are noticed. And so what does the king do? Well, the king does what a king's going to do. He's going to get uh, ready for the possibility of a power shift. He, he positions himself to remain the king because he's the king. And so, so he does something that was, was common in that day. He, he makes a treaty with Abraham. And, and I want you to think for a moment, what is the best treaty that you could make with someone who has power and money and influence? What do you do when there is someone who could potentially defeat you if there was a battle? Well, well, it's simple. You marry into their family. You, you find someone from the rival family and you marry them and you say, we're family now. And family always protects and family always looks out for one another. I, I mean, this is a very smart move on behalf of the king. And so that's what he does. He goes up to Abraham and Abraham, being fearful for his life, he doesn't blurt out, have you met Hagar? Here's Hagar. You could have her. Marry her. No, instead he says, have you met Sarah? She's my sister. She's available. He literally hands her over to the king. And this time, he, he doesn't even prep her to give her a heads up. It was this, this knee-jerk reaction based on his fear. And so the king says, so she's your sister. She's not married. She's good-looking. Awesome. I'm going to marry your sister and I'm going to become your brother-in-law and the nuclear alarm can be shut off because we're going to be good now because we're family. And so our text tells us that he sent for Sarah and he took her and the treaty was established. 
But, but here's the thing, folks. Abraham had no clue what he just jeopardized. That the consequences of his sin could be disastrous. You see, folks, Abraham didn't just lie. He didn't just act selfishly. He didn't just fail to honor and protect his wife. Ultimately, he didn't trust in the sovereignty of God, that God would take care of him, that God had a plan. And and what does he unintentionally do? He jeopardizes the covenant promise that God had given because he's God. You see, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 are two stories that are similar in appearance and circumstances, but what every commentator, author writes about is that Genesis 20 is far more critical than than chapter 12. You see, in... in, uh, in kind of in the in between, God had clearly revealed to Abraham and Sarah that together they were going to have a son. And they were going to have a son in their old age and that they would be part of a, a covenant promise. If you read Genesis 17, you will read this in verse 16 where it says, I will bless Sarah and I will surely give you a son by her and I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. I will establish my covenant with her as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. It, right? it was going to be through the birth of a son that the covenant promise would be given to humanity. Abraham risked that. And, and if you look to the genealogy found in Matthew 1, you are going to read these words that show you and tell you what was at stake. Matthew 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And the genealogy goes on and on with a bunch of names that I'm not even going to try pronouncing. And eventually we read these incredible words, and there was Mary, the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Do you get it? Abraham compromised the covenant promise. Think about it for a moment. What's the one thing that could jeopardize this? What's the one thing that could make people question the legitimacy of the birth of a barren woman? It's the seed of a different man. Abraham totally messed up. Now now listen, if you haven't heard this yet, let me just say it again. Abraham is not the hero of our story. Abraham is a man of faith who, who we would expect should have his stuff together. He should have been the greatest example of of faithfulness. He's supposed to be the man who lives above reproach because he's called the father of faith. But here's the thing, folks. Abraham, right, is a repeat offender. He's a nonstop sinner. He appears as both a man of great spiritual depths and strengths, but also this this person with this common human weakness called sin. And I I wonder, does, does this surprise you at all that God would choose him? You know, as I, as I read this passage, uh, one of the things that it, it forced me to do is to stop and to reflect on my own life, my own spiritual strengths, my own common human weakness, and my own tendencies to sin. And it's easy to read passages like this and, and shake our heads and go, Abraham, what were you thinking? But Matthew 7 reminds us that where we see a speck in our brother's eye, that we need to stop and we need to notice the log that's in ours. 
where it's easy to point fingers towards Abraham or, or to look at others in their sin and cast judgment. We need to actually look at our own hearts and we need to look long enough in the mirror to see our own sinfulness because we're all subject to it. A.W. Tozer said, the truth is men are not basically good. They are basically evil and the essence of their sins lies in their selfishness. You see, all of us are like Abraham. Sinners who, who have been called or are being called out of a past. We've been, been called to walk in submission and obedience to God and his word. But instead of listening and obeying and submitting to God, we choose to do our own thing. And our tendencies as fallen humans is to always return to our sin. It is our default mode. Proverbs 26 verse 11 so bluntly puts it, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And that's what Abraham does. And that's what I do. And that's what you do. Romans 3.23 gives us the sobering truth that regardless of, of how good we look or how nice we are or how many good things we've done, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is the missing of a mark. It is a, a wandering of the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is, is a hard heart and a stiff neck. It is the blindness and the deafness to the things of God. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. And it doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus since you were little kids or you've been called out of a strange land as an adult. Sin is something that we're going to wrestle with our whole lives. So that thing that you wrestle with, the one that you're fighting against, the one that, that's hidden deep in your heart, the one that you don't want the person beside you seeing, every so often it's gonna, gonna rear its ugly head and we're gonna be reminded just as Abraham was reminded that we're sinners who deserve nothing but death. We're not good. And when we can wrestle with that and, and when we can know that and sit in that, it helps us to appreciate the outcome of our story. And so this leads me to our second point this morning, which is, but God. You see, for the last eight chapters, we have been resting in the covenant promise between God and man and how God fulfills all of his promises regardless of men's sinfulness. Now, if you don't know what a covenant is, let me summarize it by saying this. That when the Bible speaks of God's covenant with his people, it is explaining how our relationship with God is made by his provision and exists by his terms. A covenant is a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties. It is sealed with an oath. To maybe help you understand it a, a different way or another way, uh, we could say this, that a covenant is a life and death relationship with God on his terms. The covenant that God made with Abraham was not based on Abraham's good works or his perfection or getting it right, but rather it was based on God's gracious provision because he is a loving God to his people. You see, at the start of Abraham's story, God did one thing. He simply told Abraham to leave his country, to journey to a new land that God was going to show him. And Abraham's response was faith, trusting that that was what God was going to do. He went. 
God promised Abraham that, that though his wife was barren, he would become the father of, of many nations, right? God promised Abraham that he would be blessed by God and that the whole world would be blessed through one of his offspring. You see, Abraham did nothing to deserve this. Our passage this morning is again just simply reminding us Abraham is far from being the hero, but God is. You see, Abraham's sinfulness in Genesis 20 put the whole covenant promise at risk. If the king had slept with Sarah, the promise of a son and the promise of the whole world being blessed by Abraham's offspring would be at stake. The legitimacy of the baby would be in question, right? Because Sarah was told within the year she was going to conceive and have a baby. And so here's, here's one of the best parts of our story, uh, that when the covenant was being jeopardized, God did not idly sit by because this wasn't Abraham's plan at stake. It wasn't even Sarah's plan at stake. It was God's plan to bless the world. So what does God do? Well, verse 3 tells us that he intervenes on behalf of Abraham, on behalf of the covenant promise. And it says this, But God appeared to King Abimelech in a dream by night. But God. Essentially, if we summarize verses 3 to 7, God says this, Let this be your warning, king. You're a dead man. Get your hands off of her. Get her out of your bed because she's a married woman. And although Abraham may be sinful and although Abraham deceived you, there's something bigger at play that you can't understand. Sarah, Abraham's wife, is going to carry my covenant blessing to the whole world. And I'll do whatever it takes to protect her because this is my plan. This is the plan that I have for the whole world to receive salvation. I'm not willing to let this go sideways. So what did I do? I, God, did not let you touch her. I, God, stopped you on your wedding night because she's not yours, she's mine. And, though, and through her, I will change the course of all history, past, present, and future. Now return the man's wife. Give her back. But God intervenes. You see, folks, the words but God are, in my opinion, two of the most incredible words found throughout Scripture. I believe that these words are actually at the heart of the gospel because they remind us that God, in his compassion, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, steps in on our behalf. In its most likely or simple terms, but God captures the complete nature and the character of our God. God is a God of promise, and as a God of promise, he will always intervene. He will always save and redeem and restore and resurrect and make things new. When all things seem lost, God will swoop in. He intervenes to protect the covenant promise. God intervenes to deal with Abraham's sin. God intervenes to warn the king of his impending fate if he doesn't let Sarah go. God swoops down to save because it is his character. The words, but God, are found all throughout Scripture, hundreds and hundreds of times where we see these instances where God steps in on behalf of humanity. And although we may not have dreams like the king did, and sometimes we may wonder if God actually is intervening on our behalf today, like when we find ourselves in the the pain of our sin, when each day we face its consequences, when we struggle with it, when death is around, the easy question that we can ask is, where is God in this? 
And this morning, I want to remind you that he has intervened. In Genesis 20, he intervenes on Abraham's behalf, but we are the recipients of a covenant promise. He intervened to save us. And this morning, some of us actually need to be reminded that God intervened for you. If you read Ephesians 2, you will read this, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, folks, God so loved this world that when he saw his creation in their sin and, and he saw the consequences, he couldn't just leave them. He creates a plan. He puts, puts a plan into motion when he called Abraham. And when Abraham risked the covenant promise, God steps in and he intervenes on our behalf. You see, folks, every time that I read these two simple words, but God, I am blown away because I, I know that I, I have to learn from this. I know that God intervenes. And I think one of the lessons that we need to learn in all of this is that the God of yesterday, the God of Abraham, that same God intervenes for you today. He is the same God of today. He is the same God of tomorrow. And, and let me tell you, as a sinner in need of God's grace this morning, it's so freeing to know that God intervened on my behalf because I'm a wretched sinner. Because I know without it, I would come up with some stupid plan like convincing my wife she's my sister. Again, I wouldn't do that, but that was for illustration's sake. Right? God's intervention for Abraham is because of God's faithfulness to his promise and because of his love for his people. And that's the last thing that I want us to look at this morning is the faithfulness of God. Our story continues in verses 10 and it tells us the, the confrontation of King Abimelech had with Abraham. Essentially in this section, Abraham is totally getting a, a strip rip, ripped out of him. He's being told to smarten up. And you know what? Rightfully so, because it's a word that Abraham desperately needed to hear. Our, our text says that the king said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Essentially, he's saying, how did you ever think that this was a good idea? Now, I don't know what you think, but, but isn't this a prime opportunity for Abraham to be the man of God that he's called to be? To own up to his sin, to confess it, like he wronged the king. Own up and, 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 and own what's yours. And do you, do you want to know what Abraham does, folks? He totally misses it yet again. And again. And again. What did he say? He said, I, I did this because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. Like, this is one of the most arrogant statements that, that Abraham could say, because look at how the king responded to God's intervention. He took it seriously. Obviously, he had the fear of God. Abraham goes on. He says, I did it because you might kill me because of my wife. I, I did it because, well, she is indeed my sister. She's just my half-sister. And man, I'm really glad we're running out of time because we're just going to skim over this one, okay? Different time, different culture. Don't marry your half-sisters, all right? 
And lastly, my, my favorite excuse of, of Abraham. He says this. When God caused me to wander, he blames God. When God caused me to wander, he blames him. Abraham has so much he needs to learn in his life, and it's going to be a lifetime of learning. This is not how you would expect the patriarch of the faith to respond, but what's going to happen in the next few verses just foreshadows something amazing here, folks. Then the king took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Did you guys get it? The king showers Abraham with gifts that he doesn't deserve. It was his grace being poured out. Abraham deserves nothing. But, but what did he get instead? He got riches and he got animals and he got servants. I mean, the man was given uh, a thousand pieces of silver. This is over 25 pounds of pure silver and it's more money than you could possibly make in a lifetime. And who deserves it? Not Abraham. And why did he get it? Well, there's two reasons. One, the king is proving his innocence. He's acknowledging that he was in the wrong, even though Abraham deceived him. The king was proving that he didn't lay his hands on Sarah, that, that no one could question the legitimacy of the birth of this baby because nothing happened, because Sarah was vindicated. But we can't forget the other reason, folks. What was God's promise to Abraham? that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you into a great nation. God promised gifts. He promised this, this, like, Abraham would be well known. How do you become king? You have wealth, you have possessions, right? You have money. Here, here God is actually pouring out riches on Abraham because, because God is faithful to his promise to make Abraham a great nation. Our, our passage continues to tell us that Abraham then prayed to God and he healed the king and, and healed his wife and female slaves so they could bear children. Did the king deserve this? No, the king didn't deserve it either. The king was just as much of a sinner as Abraham. But God did this because he was remaining faithful to his promise to bless the whole world. And this is just a small, small way in which we see that blessing. God could have struck the kingdom, but what does he do instead? He offers him life. He offers him kids. Right? God, God poured his blessing onto the king, even though the king didn't deserve it. And lastly, we come to the, the, the best part of the story, and it's probably actually the most overlooked part of the story because it's only this small little, little section of Scripture. But chapter 21 says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Listen, folks, Abraham could have ruined it all. And what's amazing in this passage is that God remains faithful to his promise regardless of who we are. And I, I love that, that God commands Abraham to call his son Isaac. 
Because Isaac means he laughed. It's, it's God's great sense of humor because every time that Abraham and Sarah call to Isaac, Isaac, come here. Isaac, pick up your shoes. Isaac, clean up, you know, whatever you have to clean up back in those days, right? They're both going to remember that they laughed at God's promises. But they will also remember that God was faithful. You see, the birth of Isaac is, is a significant moment in Scripture because God is continuing the covenant promise to the next generation as he had promised. And we have to remember what Scripture says. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and on and on it goes, and Mary the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. You see, folks, God is always good. Whenever he makes a promise, he keeps it. God is always faithful, even when we are faithless, because he cannot deny himself. That's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13. And this morning, some of you here need to be reminded of this, that regardless of your circumstances, regardless of, of your sin or how far gone you feel you are, that God is who he says he is. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says this, that God wasn't attracted to you and he didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is there was almost nothing to you. He did it out of sheer love, keeping the promise that he made to your ancestors. God stepped in and he mightily brought you back out of the world of slavery. He freed you from the iron grip of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know this, that God, your God, is God indeed. A God you can depend on. He keeps his covenant of loyal love with those who love him and observe his commandments for a thousand generations. You see, friends, nothing could stop God from seeing his covenant promise fulfilled. Because God had a plan of salvation for the world which is found in Jesus. In Jesus, we would, we would actually be given a new covenant, a better covenant, and when Jesus came and when Jesus died and when Jesus was risen from the dead, we were given a new promise, a gospel promise. The gospel promise is forgiveness for all of those who believe in God's son, that Jesus would take the weight of our sin on himself so that we wouldn't have to carry it anymore. We're told that he will remember your sins no more. Praise God. That he will separate them as far as the east is from the west. John 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness, everything, no matter what it is. The gospel promises us deliverance from our sins, that Jesus came not only to forgive you, but to actually deliver them from you. He, he blots out your transgressions. The gospel promises us a new life where the wages of sin offers us death. And the gospel promises us that we would be brought right back into the, the perfect relationship that we, we have with God. A.W. Tozer said, upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. Only as he... Uh, yeah, sorry, only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. We are called to respond in faith. And this morning, folks, we are invited to marvel. We are invited to celebrate and rejoice that God is who he says he is. Amen? And so as we invite the worship team up, we're also going to invite some, some of our youth leaders and some of our students to come up, and, and we're going to have communion together. And what we want to do this morning is, is respond. We're called to respond.
We're called to remember the, the moment that, that Jesus died for us. We're, we're called to remember the one promise through Abraham and Sarah. We're called to remember what he has done. That Jesus, the Savior of the world, would, would suffer for our sins so that we don't have to. And where we deserve the cross ourselves, Jesus, the righteous one, took our spot to bring us to him. Right? Jesus was put to death so that we could be made alive. And this morning, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're invited to actually leave our sin at the cross. To marvel at God because he is a God who keeps his promises and his love is everlasting. And so this morning, if, if you are carrying unrepentant sin, I, I, I want to uh, not encourage you, I want to tell you, deal with it. If you feel like you're so far gone, know that there is a savior that you can run to. And remember that Jesus offers forgiveness and life. God loves you with a never sleeping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love because it is his promise. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you are a God of promise. That even when we are faithless, Lord, you will always be faithful because that is who you are. God, I would pray that this morning, that those that needed to hear this, Lord, that they would embrace it. That they would know that you are who you say you are. And Lord, as we respond in worship, in communion, Lord, would we, would we set our hearts back to you where we have wandered and gone astray? Lord, would we leave our sin at the cross because you are far better. You are far greater than our sin, Lord. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And the church said, amen.